Well, I don't know about you, but in the middle of the week, I could use a, a jolt of worship like that, amen? Like spiritual coffee. <laughs> Turn to your Bibles to Hebrews 4. We're going to thank God for the word. I'm going to read you chapter 4, and then we're going to unpack it and have fun with it, amen? Father, we just thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the scriptures you've given us. Cover to cover, your word, all 66 books reveal Jesus Christ. Father, tonight I pray that we would get a sharper view of who you are tonight, that you would reveal your son to us. Holy Spirit, you would reveal gems of truth to us that we can apply to our daily living. Father, none of this is possible without your word. And so we ask that the word would accomplish its purpose in each of our lives tonight. In Jesus' name, and the church said... Amen. Hebrews chapter 4, the believers rest. Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we have believed entered that rest, just as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works, and again in his passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter in, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day, today, saying, through David, after so long a time, just as it has been said before, today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest, so that no one will fall through following the example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as the divisions of soul and spirit of both joint and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we did not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things, as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Powerful chapter, a lot of uh, marquee scripture quotes in there, amen? It's interesting to see how they all fit together. Many times people quote scriptures out of context for different reasons, and the scripture is multidimensional. It does have application in various ways, but when you read scripture in context, that's the best way to get the right understanding of what God is really trying to say, amen? Amen, Amen. or you like to pull things out of 
And some people like just pulling stuff out of context. Well, context matters, and so let's get the whole view here in Hebrews chapter 4. This chapter speaks of what we call and theologians call the believer's rest. There's a state of peace and safety and tranquility that's available to every believer who trusts in Jesus completely. This trust allows us to cease from our striving and our works. If you've ever been driven by doing good works for whatever reason, if you've ever been driven to accomplish something that maybe even God never told you to uh, accomplish, did you ever find yourself putting a lot of energy into something God never told you to do? Come on, be honest out there. And you're, I'm, God, I'm exhausted from doing this. And he's going, well, I never told you to do it. There's a rest that comes, a peace that comes, a safety that comes, a tranquility, and it's available to everyone. If we trust in Jesus, it will allow us to cease from our striving. God wants us to focus on godliness and holiness and all of these things, but we can get into such a mode that we're striving so hard that we, we take the joy out of life. And that's a little bit out of balance. He talks about in our striving and in our a quest to attain personal holiness and to do works that are pleasing to him that we also enter his rest so that we don't burn ourselves out amen you know when burn, we talk about burnout all the time you know what burnout happens doing things god never told us to do in our own strength and not entering his rest so let's talk about it tonight verse one is a warning to have a healthy measure of godly fear therefore let us fear wait a minute I thought we're not supposed to have a spirit of fear. No, we're not supposed to have a spirit of fear, but we should have a healthy, godly fear of certain things, amen? You and I should fear the attractive, uh, seductive nature of sin so we don't too, get too cocky about it and get sucked into it. Hello? So there's, there's good fear. There's godly fear. Uh, the spirit of fear that the enemy puts on us is not from God. But this is a warning here in this verse to what? Have a healthy measure of godly fear. If we're unsettled spiritually to the point where we have no peace, we need to examine our souls. Amen? You and I are supposed to have a measure of peace. If we're not at peace, there's something wrong, and we need to bring our hearts before the Lord so he shows us why there is no peace. Many people think, well, that's just life. I'm supposed to be anxious and stressed out and, and worried about everything and, I, and, and not having peace. And that's not what the word says. So this warning is if we have no peace, if we're unsettled, if we're not entering into God's rest, if we always feel like we're coming up short, God's never pleased with us, we're not quite sure if we're saved. Come on, am I hitting anybody tonight? We should examine our hearts. We shouldn't be overcome with anxiety and striving all the time, and especially in pleasing God. Many people have this desire, oh, I want to please God. I feel like I'm not measuring up, and, and truly, you know, it's grace that saves us. What does that mean? We're, we're not going to measure up. So having fear and anxiety because we don't measure up, being unsettled because we don't measure up, and always thinking that God is angry with us is the enemy's tactic to steal our joy and exhaust us. This is what verse 1 is warning us against. We, should, we shouldn't be spiritually unsettled. We shouldn't be driven all the time in life. If we are, we need to examine our hearts. We need to examine our faith. Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of us uh, may seem to have come short of it. So there's the, the absence of peace, the absence of rest. We should examine ourselves before the Lord. Verse 2. 
Those who died in the wilderness serve as a warning to us. For indeed, we have a good news preached to us just as they also. Who's they? The children of Israel that died in the wilderness. But the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. So there's this idea of we hear the word of God, we hear the gospel, but we've got to mix it with something. What do we got to mix it with? Faith. Amen? Now that might sound simple, but a lot of times we mix it with our own intellect. A lot of times we mix it with our own experiences. A lot of times we mix it with somebody else told us, but we've got to mix it with faith. Anybody ever mix cement? Come on, any Italians here? Make cement shoes on the weekend, that's what we do, right? You got to have the right mix. And if you don't have the right mix, if it's too dry, if it's too wet, getting the right mix is what's going to determine how good the finished product is. The right mix with what God gives us, the gospel, the, the word of God, the truth of God. Even as we study Hebrews, everything that's coming out of me tonight that the Holy Spirit's bringing past you, grab hold of it and mix it with faith. Amen. Be careful not just to strain it through your mind. I can see people just, they want to approach God intellectually. Here's the problem with that. You and I have a two-circuit brain. And all the proud people who think they're smart are like. You and I can't wrap our minds around the things of God. The Holy Spirit has to open it up to us. So if we try and filter God through our intellect, boy, we're going to have a hard time. We're going to come to wrong conclusions, and we're going to be frustrated, and we're not going to rest. They heard, the children of Israel heard the, the, the call of God, but they didn't mix the truth of what they heard with faith, so it didn't profit them is what the verse says. Everything profitable in the spiritual realm must be done by faith. You know what the currency of heaven is? Faith. Do you know what the key to a happy life is? Faith. Do you know what the key is having more of Jesus in your life? Faith. Verse 3, we enter God's rest by faith, and without faith, the oath God swore is still in effect. Listen to what he says here in verse 3. He says, for we who have believed enter that rest. Okay, so belief, faith, just as he said, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So if we don't mix what God is telling us, the gospel, the truth of God's word, and the call of God on our lives with faith, then what? The wrath of God is revealed against us. Why? Because it becomes unrighteousness to us, amen? And so understand, a lot of these things that God did in the Old Testament with the children of Israel. They serve as an example to us, and they are still in effect. Those who are not under grace are still under the law. Just because the grace covenant took effect when Jesus spilled his blood doesn't mean everybody is coming to covenant with Jesus. So if people aren't under grace, they're still under the law. They strive, they feel condemned, they feel convicted, they feel estranged from God. Why? Because that's the wrath of God trying to get them to repent. It's important we understand these things. So we enter that rest by faith. If we refuse to have faith, then the, that, that, the wrath of God, uh, you know, kind of tries to wake us up a little bit here, so we'll mix it with faith so we don't miss it. God loves us enough to shake us up when we need it so we don't miss it, amen? Verse 4 and 5, the Sabbath rest that God gave the Jews was exemplified in that during the creation process, God rested on the seventh day from all his works. The first day, uh, one day in seven, the children of Israel were expected to rest, to cease from all their works. Now, understand something about the Sabbath. The Sabbath 
Many people, there's, uh, there's whole denominations built around the Sabbath and what day it is, and you have the Seventh-day Adventists that say, if you don't worship God on Saturday and honor the Sabbath, you can't be saved. And uh, There's just a lot of nonsense that goes around with that. And the truth is this, Exodus 31, verse 15 and 17, tell us who the Sabbath is for. The Sabbath on Saturday is for the Jews. Listen, for six days work, it is to be done, but the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day is to be put to death. Does that sound serious? The death penalty for breaking the Sabbath day, for working. <laughs> Listen to verse 16. The Israelites, are, say the Israelites. The Israelites are to observe the Sabbath, celebrating it for generations to come as a lasting covenant. Who's to celebrate it for generations to come? The Israelites, the Jews. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile grafted in. Okay, listen to verse 17. It will be a sign, say sign, between me and the Israelites, say Israelites, forever. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day, he rested and, it, and was refreshed. So the Sabbath on Saturday is to be observed by the Jews forever as a covenant between them and God. But Gentiles always worshiped on this, uh, the, the, the first day of the week, the Sunday. Why? Because Jesus rose that day. And that's, it's not church tradition. It's not because the Pope said so. It's just the way the early church fathers did it because that God was in it. We were to be different from the Jews. Amen? No, just because we're grafted in, doesn't, God treats us different. If you look at what was required of Gentile believers in the New Testament when the, uh, uh, the, the apostles got together, they never said they had to worship on the Sabbath like the Jews and observe all the customs of Moses. Okay, I'm just belaboring this because it will help you to understand these things when people come to you and knock on your door or hand you a pamphlet and say, you're not saved because you don't worship on Saturday. There's a whole lot of other scriptures, too, we can go over. If they come, say, one minute, I'm going to get my pastor on the phone, and I'll, and I'll help you out. <laughs> Verse 6 talks about the reason that the generation died off in the wilderness, and it's something that, you know, we should very much pay attention to. It says, therefore, since it remains for some to enter in, and those who formerly had good news preached to them, failed to enter because of disobedience disobedience is the problem. What do you mean disobedience, Pastor? When God says to do something and we decide we're not going to do it, we'll do something else instead or we're not doing that at all. That was the whole thing that plagued the children of Israel as they came out of Egypt and wandered around in the desert for 40 years. They would not listen to God. And they complained and they murmured. Now, we would never complain and murmur. Isn't that right? And we always listen to God. Okay, so this still applies to us, right? <laughs> disobedience is the reason the generation died in the wilderness. And disobedience is still the reason that man exhausts himself, striving to justify himself before God. Oh, I got to please God, and I got to do works, and I got to make, I got to do this, and I got to be above the, the curve, and I got to be better than this guy. Listen, it's grace, not works. Never works. So, the disobedience becomes, well, God said it's grace, but I want to earn it. The disobedience happens when God says it's a free gift, but, you know, I, I want to make sure that, you know, I, I try and do all these things so I'm pleasing to God. It's powerful stuff. 
That disobedience will leave us exhausted. I know in, in times in my life I felt this. Maybe you felt it in your life, but I don't want to strive anymore. I don't want to exhaust myself anymore. I just want to rest in the fact that God loves me. He saved me by grace. I'm his son. He's got a plan for my life. Come on. Heaven is my destination. Woo. Doesn't that sound good? That sounds like sitting by a campfire with a nice hot cup of coffee. Striving, not so much. Verse 7, today is the day to quit striving and find rest in Christ. God wants us to learn to rest in him. Why? Because he gave it to us as a gift. He again fixes a certain day today saying, through David, after so long a time, just as it has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That's the key to entering into his rest, obedience. When God says something, do it. I wish I had something flashier for you. You don't seem impressed, but that's it. If God said, well, should we get a prayer committee together? Should we fast? And should we ask for a rhema word? Should we, you know, prophesy and see if someone interprets? Come on, you charismaniacs. If God says it, just do it. Hear him and obey him. And that's the key to finding his rest. And, and this is the, you know, the scripture there. If today you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Why is he reiterating that? Because that's what the children of Israel did. They hardened their hearts to the point where they fell dead in the wilderness. That's what the Pharisees and Sadducees did. They hardened their hearts to the point when the Messiah that they were looking for was standing right in front of them. They argued with him and opposed him and plotted to kill him. Do you see what disobedience does? It blinds us. It perverts us. It turns us from righteous to unrighteous. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. If you hear him speak, obey. If you do, you'll enter his rest. Verse 8 and 9 the rest is still available. Just because some people missed it, just because the children of Israel missed it, just because a whole generation died off in the desert and God swore in his wrath that that bunch would not enter his rest doesn't mean there's not a rest available for us, especially as New Testament Christians. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath day rest for the people of God. Now understand, we on the Lord's Day, Sunday, do take a Sabbath, and we are supposed to rest on that day. Amen? Six days we work on, on that day that we celebrate, you know, being Christians and coming together as the family of God. We should rest on that day. It's a proven principle. The Sabbath principle is proven that we are more productive, that we are more healthy, that we, we, we are just better off in life if we'll rest one day in seven. Amen. Some of us won't do it. And we wonder why we're exhausted and we're sick and we're worn out all the time. You know what? On Sunday after church, I kick my feet up, take a Pentecostal nap, rest all day. Oh, the grass needs to be mowed. Not today. Oh, the garage needs to be cleaned. Not today. Oh, there, there's, there's, there's wood to be split. Not today. God honors that. There's a rest in, in the natural for the people of God, and there's also a spiritual rest. See, it's a two-part thing here. Maybe some of us learn to rest on 
uh, Sunday and give our bodies a break, but, but spiritually we're still striving, we're still frustrated, and we haven't entered his rest. Why? Because of disobedience. We need to find out where we're stuck and obey God so that we can have that spiritual rest. Don't harden your hearts when you hear his voice. There is another day available. God's rest is still available for us today. How many, how many can just be honest enough in church to say, there's a time when I let life run me ragged, but... <laughs> But I've, I've learned to find rest. Amen. Maybe you got to say it in faith. So God wants his people to know, and that's us, the church, that there is a day of rest for us. And just because some missed it doesn't mean that he closed the door forever. Verse 10 and 11, those who enter God's rest do so by following his example. This is... This is cool. God exemplifies things for us. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works. And God did, the, did from his. So God rested. Verse 11. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall, though following the same example of disobedience. So God rested uh, when he was creating. He did all his creation and, and he took that day off and he just rested and ceased from all his works he did that as an example it's a physical and a spiritual rest for us and that's what we have to remember now if we don't enter his rest we like the hebrews will fall exhausted in the wilderness of life so this is important if you're out there thinking well it would be nice to relax a little bit and you know take it out of high gear and not feel so driven but, you know, if not, I'll just continue the way I'm going. You'll burn yourself out. You'll deplete yourself. Spiritual striving is exhausting. So the Hebrews were prescribed a remedy for their disobedience, and, and that was diligence. Uh, diligence means, you know, paying attention to all the details as a remedy to avoid the, the pitfall of disobedience. Be diligent. Be diligent to keep your heart right and keep your mind filled with the word of God, to keep your faith strong. Amen. You're here on Wednesday night. What's that? That's diligence. There's a lot of things you could have did tonight. You, you could have sat in front of the boob tube and just let the world, you know, hit you with waves of blah. You ever sit in front of the TV just like blah. You can watch it for hours and it doesn't refresh you. So you're here tonight. What is that? That's diligence. Disobedience would be saying, ah, I got other things to do. I'm not going to put God first. But God bless you tonight. You're here. There's some people missing. Let's talk about them now. The Old Testament serves as an example to us. This is why, you know, the writer of Hebrews is bringing all of these things up in the, in the past. Why? Because the Jewish listener understands all of these things, and he's trying, to, he's trying to get them to see how, you know, those that were before them and their forefathers, they had some shortfalls, and they didn't want to make the same mistakes. So the Old Testament serves for them and for us as an example. It chronicles the mistakes and the sins of those who have gone before us, and, and this is the reason. Not so we could think we're more spiritual than them, so we could avoid doing the same things wrong. The whole entire Old Testament is there as an example to us so that we don't make the same mistakes that other people did. Now, hopefully, we're wise enough to utilize that and learn from it because, you know, if we're not, we just keep doing it. It is amazing how you can see the patterns of sin in our culture, in our society, and in the nations that, you know, these things happened before and they're happening again. What's that all about? 
people not learning from the example. And the pattern repeats itself. And it will do it in the nations. It will do it in our lives if we're not careful, if we're disobedient, and if we're not diligent to watch for our souls. You and I need to watch for our souls. We need to keep each other accountable too. If we see a brother and sister who's spiritually dry, we need to ask them, how are you doing? Are you praying? Are you spending time in God's word? Where were you on Sunday? Where were you on Wednesday? Amen? Now, that's not just to boost attendance. That's to be obedient to the word of God, that we provide accountability for each other. So avoid making the same mistakes that they made. You know, a whole generation fell in the wilderness dead. They never made it to the promised land. We don't want to let the wilderness of this life choke our faith out. And, and, you know, heaven is our goal, and we need to keep our eyes on the prize. Verse 12 makes a powerful statement about the role of God's word. It says, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the divisions of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Verse 12 is just packed. We could spend a couple weeks in there unpacking that, truly. And I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to do it justice as we just do a verse-by-verse study here in chapter 4. But let's just take a look at what's in there. The Word of God is powerful. It keeps us from sin. It keeps us from unbelief. It keeps us from disobedience. Why? You know, somebody once said, uh, this Bible will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from the Bible. You say, well, I don't read the Bible anymore. You better look for some sin. The reason, we don't want, the reason we don't want to be in this is because we got some sin in our life and we don't want the light shined on it. Come on. You and I need to be in the Word. The Word is just an amazing asset that we have. It's living, it's active, and it's sharp. That's what verse 12 says. What does it mean it's living? The Word of God is living in the sense that the Holy Spirit keeps illuminating it to us so that we can see its truth and its applications in greater depth and detail. How come you can read the same verse for your whole life and every time you read it, you could get something fresh out of it? I'm asking, why? How why does that work? It's living. The Holy Spirit's illuminating it. See, he shines the light of truth on it so that we can see it in a fresh way. I preach through the scripture and so many texts and, you know, like I said in some other service, my bi- I have Bible after Bible that's outlined and markered and highlighted and torn apart. And every time I open this up, it's fresh. <laughs> if you can rest in anything, rest in this. Pastor's not gonna run out of material. I mean, it's just amazing. What is that? It's alive. It's living. The Holy Spirit illuminates it to us. We understand its truth, its application in greater depth and detail the more we immerse ourselves in it. What else does verse 12 says? says that the, the word is living and active. How is it active? In a way that it confronts and guides and speaks to us so precisely in the situations of our lives. See, the word of God is not just for times of old or a different time. No, it's active. It's effective and true right now. And it'll speak to whatever situation you're in right now. Are you in fear? Go to the word. Are you floundering in your faith? Go to the word. Are you having family crises? Go to the word. There's something in the word that will speak actively to your situation. You should be excited about that, amen? 
We're not reading a history book here. This is not, oh, you know, let's see about uh, the War of 1812 in here and see if I can glean any wisdom from that. No, this thing is alive and it's active and it's got the answers of life. What else? It's sharp. Anybody sharp out there? It's much better to be sharp than to be dull. Don't raise your hand. This is not the altar call. Dull Christians turn more people away from the faith than I don't know what. Oh, I'm a Christian. I'm just circling the wagons and waiting for Jesus. Well, aren't you a bundle of petunias tonight? See, the word is sharp. What does that mean? It cuts through every excuse. It cuts through every obstacle. It cuts through all our unbelief. It cuts through all our fear, and it does it with accuracy and conviction. The word of God slices right through our excuses. Slices right through our lack of understanding. Slices right through our fear. And it gets right to the heart of the matter. Now the analogy they use here is a powerful one. It says it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Most of us have never, uh, you know, held any kind of edged uh, implement that's two-edged. That's usually uh, something that is used for combat, used for, you know, fighting. But a two-edged sword, you know, the sword, the, the sword, the knives you have in your kitchen that you cut your steak with, you know, it, it's got cutting edges on one side. Maybe it's serrated. Maybe you've got cut coast. Ooh. <laughs> but a two-edged sword, Charles, is sharp on both sides. And if you've, I've held a two-handed sword in my hand. I've held Viking swords. I, I held the, the sword of David. They make replicas of them. And I mean, if you, a sword is a fearsome weapon. <laughs> I don't know about you. I'd rather be shot than chased with a sword. But a two-edged sword, what? It cuts on the way in. It cuts on the way out. It can slash. It can, I mean, it's just a fearsome thing. And that's what the analogy here, the word of God is not a toy, Hello, this is not a joke. This is not a, you know, a little, you know, a little spiritual devotion book that you read a little bit every day to, you know, encourage. No, this is a weapon. (laughs) Man, I wish there were some Christians here tonight. We use this to put the enemy to flight. We use this to chop the devil's lion head off. We use this to fight our battles on our knees. When Jesus was in the wilderness and the devil attacked him, he said, it is written, it is written, it is written. What was he doing? Slash, thrust, cutting them to pieces. You and I need to understand the word is living, it's active, and it's sharp. It's our greatest asset. It's our greatest spiritual weapon. It's a weapon of offense that the, the, the Lord gives us to repel the enemy, and we need to learn to use it. Jeremiah uh, 17, 9 through 10 says this. It says, the heart is deceitfully above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doing. So the word of God judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And what does Jeremiah tell us about the heart? It's desperately wicked. Who can know it? Only the Lord knows the heart, and only the word of God can sift through our hearts and get us to see where we're twisted up. This is why if you and I don't get into this, our hearts will stay twisted up. What what untwists our minds and our hearts is the word of God. 
So, you know, that was a good commercial for the Word of God. Hopefully, that will stimulate us to get in it more. I know that I'm increasing my time in the Word every day, and I need it more than ever. Amen? I've been saved since I'm 14. I'm 51, and I need the, I need the Word now more than ever. And I hope you feel that way, too. Verse 13 shows us that God has complete clarity, and I want you to... I want you to see how this scripture uh, just applies to us. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to his eyes, bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So talking about God, that nothing is hidden from him. He sees everything. He sees every little creature. Everything's open to him. It's laid bare to his eyes. And so God has no blind spots. God has complete clarity. God's not up in heaven calling a meeting because he's confused. He doesn't say, all right, Trinity, let's get together. You know, we got some issues here. I haven't quite figured this out. No, God knows the beginning from the end. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. Everything is open and laid bare before him. There's no blind spots for God. He sees the big picture all the time. We can't hide from him, but we can always trust him and he knows what's best for us and always does what's best for us. So come to the word, amen. Trust the Lord. Lord, Lord, I don't know why you're asking me to do this. It's back to this. It's our two-circuit brain. Do we really want to filter God through our little intellect and, and uh, decide whether or not we're going to be obedient to him because we can't understand? I know that's a hard sell because we like to think of ourselves as spiritual and intelligent I'm feeling a pushback right now. But the truth is, trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but trust and obey. I don't understand, Lord, but I'm going to be obedient. I don't feel it, God, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, it doesn't make sense to me. What you're asking me to do is the opposite of what I thought to do. Ha, how many times has that happened? But I'm going to do it anyway. Ha. God has no blind spots, so trust him. God knows the beginning from the end, so be obedient to him. Verse 14 and 15, the theme of Jesus being our high priest uh, comes into play again. This is a very uh, pronounced theme in Hebrews. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So there's the theme in Hebrews, the high priest. Why? To the Jew, a high priest was vital because the high priest represented them before God. Who's the high priest now? Not some guy dressed up in an ephod with all the jewels. No, the high priest forever is Jesus Christ. There's no need for a high priest anymore to enter the Holy of Holies once a year. The veil has been torn in two, amen. We have the capacity to have intimacy with the Father. Jesus, our high priest, is far superior to every other high priest. Remember, the point of Hebrews, what? Was to prove the superiority of Jesus Christ in every way to the Jewish mindset so that they would believe and receive him by faith. So Jesus is far superior to any high priest that ever was, to any prophet that ever was, to any leader in God's kingdom that ever was or ever will be. Jesus is the head of the church. You say, what do you need plus Jesus? You need, you need Jesus plus a good denomination. No, you need just Jesus. You need Jesus but a good pastor who knows how to rightly divide the word and keep you laughing. No, you just need Jesus. 
You see, it's Jesus plus nothing. Everything else is just, you know, it's extra. But, but Jesus is that high priest, and he's superior. And, and to the Jewish mindset, they needed to know he's superior to Abraham. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to David. He, above all those Old Testament saints, they, you know, they are inferior to him in the way that he is above them because he was preexistent. Before, you know, Moses, before Abraham, Jesus existed. I am, he said. The text tells us exactly why Jesus is superior. He passed through the heavens. What does that mean? He, he, heaven was his starting place. Most of us are born and we die. And if we're right with God and in Christ, we go to heaven. Jesus did the opposite. He came from heaven to earth. Amen. No one else did that. So he's superior to any other leader that the Jews ever knew. Any other leader will ever know. Jesus, uh, he came from heaven to earth. He died and he rose again. So he, he is far superior to anything that we can compare in the flesh. Uh, he can relate to us. I love this here. The fact that, you know, he, he's not, you know, some impersonal God who can't relate to us. He, he knows exactly what we're going through. For we do not have a high priest, verse 15 says, who cannot sympathize with our weakness. What in the world does that mean? See, Jesus, because he was in the flesh, knew the weakness of the flesh. He was fully God and fully man, but because he was in the flesh, he had the capacity to sin. You say, oh, no, Jesus could never sin. Listen, if Jesus couldn't sin, then the fact that he didn't sin doesn't justify him to be a savior, and his death on the cross is meaningless. Understand the theology here. The fact that Jesus was in the flesh means he could sin, which means he knew the weakness of the flesh. He knew what it was like to be tempted, but he never sinned. Jesus came from heaven to earth. Jesus can sympathize with our weakness. Why? Because he overcame the flesh. He never sinned. He never gave in to the nature of the flesh. And he died in our place, a worthy sacrifice to satisfy the justice of God. Only Jesus could break the power of sin, and he did. Verse 16 uh, is the concluding verse here, and it encourages us to draw near with confidence to God. Now listen to this. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Uh, you know, all of us need grace in life at moments. All of us need mercy. I've talked about mercy accounts and having an account in heaven when we sow mercy, when we sow grace, what? We, we reap it. And so uh, here's a story I want to share with you about a Christian man who showed us a little bit of the depth of the meaning of grace. In the town of Wishaw lived a good Christian man who became a judge. One morning there appeared before him in his court a friend from his youth that he hadn't seen in years. This friend had strayed from the paths of righteousness and he had committed a serious crime. Those who knew the relationship between the two men in the courtroom thought that the judge would be very merciful to his former friend, and they were very surprised when the judge imposed the maximum sentence, a heavy fine. They were also even more surprised when the judge got off the bench, took off his robe, went to the court officer, pulled out his own wallet, and paid the fine himself. He did his duty as a judge, he upheld the law, but he also did his duty as a Christian and he showed mercy to a hurting soul in his time of need. You see, 
Jesus did this for us. And we get it and we know it. We, we had a debt we couldn't pay. We were guilty in the court of heaven. Our sin was indisputable that we were lost and the penalty was death. Jesus came down from heaven, took off his royal robes, died a sinner's death in our place. As it were, he pulled out his own wallet and he paid the price with his own blood. And that's mercy. That's grace. And that's our example tonight. You say, well, how gracious should I be to people? How gracious has God been to you? How merciful should I be with people? You know, they're, they're miserable. They're not even sorry. How merciful has Jesus been with us? While we were yet sinners, he died for us. Grace and mercy, grace and mercy. Let that be the output of our lives. Let that be the thing that defines us. When people talk about us, they should say, you know, they're, they're good people. They're godly people. They're, they're merciful. They're gracious. When you get an opportunity to show grace to someone who really doesn't deserve it, show it, because the world is watching, amen? The world is watching. The people that you'll affect may not even be the person who needed the grace. It might be everybody else around us. So show grace and mercy. We have this high priest who can relate to us. He is a great high priest because he came from heaven to earth. He has no blind spots. He knows the beginning from the end. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. You can trust him tonight. Stop striving and enter his rest. Do all that you can to enter his rest because it's available to each of us. Let's bow our heads tonight. Father, I just thank you tonight for this Wednesday night group, and I pray for each one of us here in, in our lives, Lord. There are areas where all of us are still striving. So God, deliver us from that. Help us to rest in your grace, to know that you have done a finished work in the cross. When Jesus said it is finished, he wasn't kidding. It's finished. The price has been paid. It's a free gift. God, Help us to cease from our works that are unholy and unnatural and to do works of service out of love, not trying to earn salvation, but in gratitude for what you've given us through the shedding of your blood. I ask it all in Jesus' name and the church.